Good morning. This morning we are going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 15. If you can find your way there, just follow along on the screen as I read. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. May God help us to understand these words of his. If you know me, you know that one of my very favorite stories is the Lord of the Rings. I read them long before they were turned into a movie box office smash. In the books, you get a whole different flavor than you can get in the movie. We don't, we should expect that since Hollywood did the movies and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien a believer, uh, did the books. At the very end of the trilogy, there's this odd scene of how the hobbits have come home to the Shire to live again with the mere mortal, mere average hobbits. And as they have reintegrated back into the Shire, people began to wonder why they're so different. You see, when these uh, four mere average ordinary hobbits go off to save the world, they encounter places and people that are different than anyone or anything they had ever seen. And it changed them. That is that uh, they uh, went to the land beyond the Western Sea. A land that they had never seen, so great, so magnificent, so life-changing that it really came into them and changed them to the point where they came home and did the same things they've always done, enjoyed the parties that they've always done, moved back into the homes in which they had always lived in, and yet they felt like they were never home. They felt like they were home, but they weren't home. They felt like these were their people, but they were not their people. And so eventually, the hobbits began to ask the question, what's wrong with you? 
And if you remember uh, the, the actions of these particular two hobbits, where Sam and, and Frodo go to the seacoast, and they're often there looking beyond and wandering beyond the sea, what life was like for them during the adventures. And again, to sing the song that they had heard beyond the sea. We still remember we who dwell in the far land beneath the trees, the starlight on the western seas. At the end of their lives, you can remember at the end of the book, Frodo dies and they put him in a boat to go to the land beyond the western sea that he so much longed for. Our passage today tells us that is the experience of every Christian. That something great has come into you that has made you so intrinsically different, so profoundly changed, so magnificently altered that you are home, but you're not home. You have seen and tasted and touched things that have broadened your worldview, that have changed your perspective, that has revolutionized and reordered your loves. You now see things differently than the average person on the planet. And the world looks at you and says, why are you so different? I don't mean they're asking, why are you Christians so weird? Sometimes we wear that description. But they're just wondering why what you love is different. Why you order things differently. Why you live your lives differently. What have you seen? What has come into you that has so profoundly changed you that you're home but you're not home? You seem to laugh louder, cry more deeply, love more profoundly, long more wonderfully. Because you have seen something, you have tasted something, you have felt something so profoundly deep, it has altered who you are to where the world sees you as a paradox, sees you as a conundrum, to see you as a conflicting idea. Our passage today tells and explains why you're like this. And maybe, possibly, you've never considered your profound identity change that makes you different than the world. Our passage teaches us that sometimes the world looks at you and doesn't understand you. And because it misunderstands, sometimes it results in hostility and hatred toward you and Christianity. Why is this important? It's always important to ground ourselves in why we get the reception that we get sometimes. To know why the world looks at you and says, I don't understand. And what I don't understand, I tend to, tend to reject. What I don't understand, I tend to be pejorative toward. When I look at you, I don't understand you and I don't want anything to do with you. Why? If you're this morning contemplating Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, understand that being a follower of Jesus isn't so much a lifestyle change. 
as it is a nature change. Christians are so profoundly transformed into something else that the world looks at you and you're an enigma. And because they can't get their minds around who you are and why you do what you do, sometimes the world rejects you. The world is hostile toward you. And sometimes... The world hates you. And so our passage this morning says that why that is is because something radically has changed you. Jesus, in the previous text that we looked at last week, is I am the vine and you are the branches. And I told you that that is a long sentence to say this. I've come into you. Something great has come into you. And then being there has radically changed who you are. It's made you very different. And the world cannot figure that out. No matter how much you seek to explain. That lack of understanding has caused the hostility that we feel sometimes. Jesus is saying, you're not from here, but you are from here. Your heart has shifted over the sea. A radical conflict occurs in the world because of a radical change in your heart, in your nature, in your being. You were mere mortals, but you are not anymore. A radical, a radical conflict occurs because the world sees this radical change that has come into you, this greatness that has come into your heart. And they don't understand. But that radical change makes possible a radical challenge of being able to move out into this world, this homeland of ours, and testify to what Jesus has done for us and in us. Look at verse 18. This, this conflict is inevitable. Our passage opens with, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it ever hated you. Paul agrees with him. In 2 Timothy, Paul says this, All who live godly lives, please understand that that is Bible talk for Christian. That is Bible talk for followers of Jesus. All who follow Jesus will be persecuted. Didn't say maybe, possibly, kind of, but will. And therefore, hostility, because of misunderstanding, is inevitable. Why? Because the world doesn't like what Jesus said. world doesn't like what Jesus taught. The world looks at us And doesn't like what we say. Because we teach what he taught. Remember, this is verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You you hear what he's implying here. To the degree that we are faithful to what Jesus said and taught 
will be to the degree that we will be rejected by the world because he was rejected by the world. Because his teaching was so radically different than the values of the world in which he lived and the world in which we live. You see, his teaching was so authoritative. They were not used to listening to a rabbi, that means teacher, who taught so authoritatively. What I mean by that is that every rabbi, when a rabbi got up to, in synagogue to teach, he got up and he taught. And when he was done, he sat down. And then the people in the room, they would question and say, is this true? Does this really jive with what we know that the Bible says? And then when they come to an agreement about what he taught, they said, amen. The word amen means so be it. And until the amen was given, they didn't trust what the rabbi said. That's where that whole idea of like the Bereans go and test. That's where that idea comes from, is that in synagogues, the men sat in the room and judged the teacher by what they knew. And they gave their word, amen. Do you know how Jesus taught? Look at it over and over again. If you have a a red letter Bible, you'll be able to see this very easily. When Jesus would teach, he would say, amen and amen. And then he would give the teaching. That's the opposite of the rabbis. They would teach and then they would hope for an amen. Why would Jesus say amen and amen before he taught? Because he wanted them to know you're not judging what I'm teaching. Because what I'm teaching doesn't come from here. It has an authority of its own. And so I'm going to testify to its authority so you don't have to. I'm going to tell you that it has an authority that doesn't come from you. And the way I'm going to show you that is I'm going to say amen and amen. Some translations say truly, truly. Other translations say verily, verily. Modern English translations will say amen and amen. Or truly, truly. But it's not just that they're not to judge because it's already authoritative. But his word is also autonomous. You know what autonomy means? It means it doesn't derive itself from any person or anything on this planet. It's from beyond and above here. And so it's autonomous. It's not shaped by culture. It's not shaped by gender. It's not shaped by by the way in which we see the world. It's autonomous. In our world today, people say that the truth can't be known, or if it can be known, all that can really be known is the truth that's true to you. The idea behind postmodernism and Jesus is saying that truth, that kind of truth is tied to you. That kind of truth is tied down to this world. I bring a truth that doesn't emanate from this place. I bring a truth that is beyond, and therefore not only can you not judge it, you must submit to it. But you see, as long as it's from here, as long as it's a person that comes up with the truth, you can judge it for yourself. But when it's from above and beyond, you don't get to judge it, you must submit to it. But thirdly, Jesus' teaching is subversive. And this is one of the reasons why the world so struggles with Christian teaching, because we're teaching what Jesus taught, and to the degree and faithfulness that we teach to what Jesus taught, it's received 
in ways of misunderstanding, or if it is understood, it's rejected. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Christianity, faithful teaching of Jesus, in liberal cultures, has always sounded conservative. Because Jesus taught about what? Jesus taught about purity and holiness and being faithful to your, to your spouse and, and, and faithful to your children and faithful to your community. And all those are conservative values. But in a liberal culture that says, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life while you can. It sounds so offensive. How dare you tell me how to live when I only have this one life to live? And because I only have this one life to live, I'm going to live it the way that I think that makes me happy. In a liberal culture like ours, Christianity sounds very conservative. That's why they call it the religious right. But in a conservative culture, and, and many of us have lived in parts of our country that is very conservative, Christianity sounds very, very liberal. Because Jesus also taught about mercy and justice and, and kindness and generosity in a way that people did not live in that time. To, to treat women like men, to treat slaves like free, to treat Gentiles like Jews, those are revolutionary, subversive thoughts. And in a, in a conservative culture, when Christians began to talk about mercy in that way, you know how conservatives talk about mercy? You give and support people who are deserving poor. You see that, that adjective of deserving poor as if there are two kinds of poor, those that deserve mercy and those that don't? Can you imagine going to heaven someday and saying, Lord, or Peter says, why should I let you in heaven? And, and, and you say, uh, because I'm part of the deserving poor. No. By definition, mercy goes to those who don't deserve mercy. Because no one deserves mercy, or it's not mercy. Don't you see how liberal Christianity can come across? In a conservative culture, you're telling me to take my great wealth that I've accumulated for my retirement and give it away to people who are in need? That just seems so radical to, to ensure that everyone in our community has access to education of a quality that allows them to get ahead, to make sure that drugs are not sold on the street corners where kids play, to, to, to see that there's an epidemic in Anne Arundel County in our state and our nation with heroin because it's killing our kids. Those aren't conservative ideas or liberal ideas. They're biblical ideas and they're received differently dependent upon the culture. This kind of conflict, this kind of misunderstanding is a result of a radical change in you. Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world struggles with Christians. When Christians are faithful to teach what Jesus taught, they struggle with us because we are not the world's own. 
Another way to say that is the world doesn't own you. You haven't become independent free agents. When, when, when Jesus came in you, when greatness came into you, that didn't make you a free agent where you can negotiate your next contract for life. You move from one slavery to another. That's the way Paul talked about it. His favorite word for himself was doulos. And that means slave. Slave of Christ. And I think that's important because we tend to think of ourselves as free agents. Because that's how we treat church sometimes. When someone offends me, someone hurts my feelings, I will free agent myself to another place. Sometimes we we feel that way about our relationships at work. I'm a free agent at work, and if they don't pay me what I believe I'm worth, when they don't give me the jobs that I think I ought to have, then I'm going to be a free agent. Our world is thought of as free agents. And Christianity teaches that, no, you're not a free agent. Someone owns you. It's either the world or it's Jesus. And I understand if you're contemplating today whether to follow Jesus or not, and you reject it because of this, that's understandable. I can, I can accept that. I can grieve over that, but I can accept that because you're rejecting it for the right reason. Because Jesus is Lord, not just a Savior. Do you remember C. Everett Coop? I know for some of you, he's beyond your age limit. He was the Surgeon General in the 1980s during the Reagan administration. He came out of Philadelphia where he'd become a Christian under Donald Barnhouse's ministry at 10th Press. He was a world-renowned pediatric surgeon when Reagan selected him as a Surgeon General. He was the poster child for the religious right. Loved him, loved him, loved him. Primarily because he was one of the doctors who would stand up and say that, yes, women have choices over their bodies, but they can't do it at the expense of the life of the weakest person on the planet, the one who cannot speak for himself. This is the kind of the language that Everett Koop would use for why abortion should be almost non-existent in our culture. It's because the child is a life too and doesn't get to protest at the legislature. It doesn't get to uh, stand up and testify in court. Quite frankly, Everett Koop thought that people, adults, get to speak for children on their behalf for life. And so Reagan selected him in 1981 to be a Surgeon General. And at the uh, uh, confirmation hearings, the liberals that sat on the Judiciary Committee called him Mr. or Dr. Unqualified. Because they didn't understand. They didn't understand that part of teaching comes out of Psalm 139 or, or, or the psalm that says that in my mother's womb you knew me. They didn't understand that, so they saw him as part of this crazy religious rite. You know what also happened at the very end of his term as Surgeon General? In the mid-80s, AIDS became an epidemic in our culture. Really the whole world, but specifically 
It became aware in the United States. And the Reagan administration at that time decided to keep an arm's length from AIDS. Meanwhile, people all over the country, including Rock Hudson at the time, was coming out and saying he had AIDS. It was C. Everett Koop, the first Republican who said that the government has an obligation to care for and find a cure for AIDS. Do you know who turned on him? It wasn't the religious left. They, they loved him then. It was the right. Don't you see? If you're really faithful to the scriptures, if you're really faithful to Jesus' teaching, sometimes the left is going to love you. And sometimes the right is going to hate you. And sometimes the right is going to love you. And sometimes the left is going to hate you. Because Christianity is not left or right. That's why the world hates you. It's because I can't put you in a category. I can't typecast you. I can't put you in a box. I can't figure you out. And because I can't figure you out, what do we do with things that are enigmas? We reject them. We hate them. Because the world can't own you. Because someone else does. Jesus says, I have moved your hearts far from your homeland. I've put something so great in you that it has profoundly changed you. It has profoundly changed your identity. And that is why the world can't understand you. The world can't trust you because sometimes you sound liberal and sometimes you sound conservative. That's the paradox. You know, it's, a, it's the same Christian who joins and locks arms with liberals over deeds of mercy and justice are the very ones who say that Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that seems so contradictory. That seems to be such a paradox. How in the world can you, on the one hand, take care of the poor? How can you, on the one hand, love of people who have been put into prison wrongly? And sought their freedom. How can, how can you take care of children who are orphans? And then tell the world that Jesus is the only way. You're an enigma. And that's why the world doesn't understand you. That's why the world sometimes is hostile to you. And therefore, this radical change that has gone in you creates a, a tremendous opportunity for Christians in this world. This radical challenge before you. We are Christians so inexplicable to our world. Because of this radical change that has gone on in our hearts, this greatness that has come into us, it tells us to go. Every child that knows the song that you cannot hide it under a bushel knows this is true. If the church takes this greatness and hides it from the world, then we are not living the teaching that our Heavenly Father gave His Son to give to us. We didn't read verse 16. It was from last week. But listen again to verse 16 that was just a couple of verses before our passage. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Love one another as I have loved you. 
That's why Jesus says you don't belong to this world, because I chose you out of the world. That's what verse 19 teaches. The love between us and the love between us and Jesus is what creates this cleavage between Christians and the world. Do you sense that sometimes, that you live in a world that there seems to be a chasm between you and them? I don't mean that in a pejorative way that that they're less than, that you're superior to, but do you recognize the difference? Do you feel the misunderstanding? Do you understand the hostility that in some cases results in some Christians even dying for their faith and others to be put into prison and others just simply to not be in? The love between us and Jesus and the love between us creates this chasm because they cannot see him. And yet we are devoted to him. They don't understand that kind of love that gets you up on a Sunday morning to be together with other Christians to worship him. Because nothing good happens before 10 a.m. on a Sunday. All you have to do is drive through the neighborhoods and you don't see anybody. Nothing moves. But you do for whatever crazy reason. And then you, when, when they hear that you support the causes that you support... You take care of people that you know. You weep with those who are weeping. You have joy when those who have joy. They look at that and they say, there's something wrong here. We don't understand. You all remember King Edward VIII. He's the king who abdicated his throne to marry Wallace Simpson, who was the American socialite who had been married before. And that was a big no-no in England at the time. He abdicates the throne and so his relatives come to him and they, and they say, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Why are you giving up the throne? And Edward said, you don't know her like I do. I love her. That's the way Christians are. The world, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers look at you and they say, I don't understand. You don't understand because you don't know him. And because you don't know him, you can't love him. And because you don't know him, you don't know his love for you. That's why the world can't understand you Christians. Unless you have been to the Western Sea, you don't know what it's like. That's why he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Because no one would choose without knowing. No one seeks after God. A greatness has to come into you and change you in two ways. Our scriptures say so many ways that Christian Christianity, the greatness changes you. But our passage says in two ways. One, in the what you love, which is what I've just been talking about. But the other one is this idea of what you see. Verse 27, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me. You've been so radically and fundamentally changed from what you once were. That when you return home, you know this is not your home. Because you know that there's something bigger, something larger out there 
a bigger reality, a deeper reality. But Christians don't think this world is bad. That's Gnosticism. That's the ancient Greek teaching. That's not current biblical teaching. The Bible doesn't ever ask you to hate the world. Christians see the world as a small place within a bigger reality. Christians don't lose hope for their homeland or the people that live in their homeland because we Christians know we are a miracle because we had nothing to do with the greatness coming into us. Christians are sent back into their homeland to testify, to testify what Jesus has done for us and in us. Remember, we want terribly for our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors to see what we have seen, to love what we love because of who loves us and what he has shown us. In a couple of weeks, you and I are going to get a great opportunity to do that. We just happen to have an old archaic name called Vacation Bible School. But it is a radical opportunity for people of EP to minister to kids and their families for a week. They'll be coming in the hundreds. And a quarter of them won't be kids and families that attend any church in our community. What a great privilege we have to talk about Jesus and what he has done for us, to testify who he is and what he's done for us to them and their families. I want to encourage you to come. Volunteer. If you can't volunteer all week, volunteer for a part. Because it's a great opportunity for you to engage with people who have come to this place for the purpose of engaging with Christians about Jesus. We die for those opportunities. And here's one created for us. What you can do in order to register, and it's always like this for us, It's just two weeks away. Many of you have smartphones and can download the EP Church app. If you haven't done that yet, and 400 of you have, great. There are way more than 400 people here. Download the app. You can go to the PlayStation, I mean Play Store, or you could go to App Store, PlayStation. Never played one of those. And you can download the app, and on there is the registration. If you want to register your kids... Register your kids. If you want to invite your neighbors and register your neighbor's kids, take that opportunity. It is a wonderful experience for us to build relationships with people who are coming. Christians know there is a radical conflict going on in this world. We know it because we have been radically changed and the world doesn't understand what's happened to us. Why we love what we love, why we... See what we see, why we live how we live, why we teach what we teach. But that radical change, it's created a a radical opportunity for us to go back into the world in which we came out of and to testify who Jesus is and what he has done. To tell people about the land beyond the Western Sea. Even while we live among the shades of those trees in this land. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the beauty 
and the greatness that has come into us as your followers. That we were once owned by this world and now not only have we been set free, but now we are owned by you. And you have reordered our loves. You have reordered our perspective. You've reordered our lives. So that we might enter this homeland that is no longer our homeland. But to testify what you have done in us and for us. Help us, Lord, to have concrete ways to do that with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, with our co-workers with the world in which we live, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.